Well, you, uh, most of you have probably been on an airplane before. I, I would say probably the majority of us have. And you may have had the experience where as you begin the descent and that ground becomes closer and closer to, to get to the earth and then finally the, hopefully those uh, wheels touch the ground, uh, this thought may go on in your head and you, you're, you're kind of evaluating, would I fly, would I fly this, this uh, airline again? And you say, you know what, yeah, that, that was pretty good, that was pretty smooth, I'd fly them again. Or sometimes you're like, whew, I, I don't know, I realize those were turbulence, but the way, it, what happened and the way that cart was coming down the aisle, I mean, I got bruises, man, I, I don't know if I'm flying this one again. I, I wonder as we begin the descent of Revelation, we've been through the 22 chapters, we're now in the final chapter, we're beginning the descent, I wonder what your experience has been. Uh, in this great, great book for those who have been here the whole time. Hopefully, it's the former, and you think, you know, that was, that was a fun book to go through. Uh, I, I, I'm not as intimidated about, by the book as I once was. Yes, there was, there was for sure turbulence. There was times where I felt disoriented. But by and large, uh, that was a great, great book. I hope that was your uh, experience I know it has been mine. I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. But we certainly are in the, des- the descent here. Uh, John is wrapping up the book. And as we, as we begin the descent, uh, I thought it'd be helpful to at least remember where this whole journey started. Uh, if you remember in John, or uh, chapter 1, verse 9, John gives us his situation. There in chapter 1, verse 9, he tells us that he has been sent to the island of Patmos, on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. So because he proclaimed the word of God, in particular the testimony of Jesus, uh, what is true about Jesus today, the reign of Christ, and the future, the return of Christ that's coming. So John says because of his message of that, he was was sent off to this island of Patmos. And now John, uh, older in life, he is an apostle and he's writing to the churches. So this, uh, this is a letter that he sent off. Uh, Patmos is on an island off the coast of Asia Minor. And these seven churches that are referenced in the, in the book are churches in Asia Minor. So he's sending them off. Most likely John actually did ministry in Asia Minor. So he knows these churches and he knows their situation. Now there were certainly more than seven churches in Asia Minor. And John certainly knew them. It seems, because as you, if you've been with us, the number seven is very symbolic. It's, it's a number for completeness or wholeness. He's grabbing uh, certain churches uh, in different situations and talking about their situation. So we'll, we see some churches that are doing quite well, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia, uh, but they're under persecution. You have other churches like the church in Laodicea that is very wealthy, but they're simply coasting. And they're not doing well. You have other churches like Ephesus that started out really well, but their love has grown cold. And you have different churches in the middle like Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis who are, who are seeming either to uh, blend in with the world or they're starting to believe messages from the world that are coming in and infiltrating the church. Almost as if you could love the world and, and love God at the same time. And uh, they are beginning to do practices, sexual immorality, uh, or the eating food sacrificed to idols. They're doing things that the church should not be doing. And so John is writing this letter. For some, it's a comfort. And for some, it's meant to confront them. 
All right? Supposed to, supposed to confront the church and comfort the church. And that's right in line with the prophets. And in fact, if you saw in this passage, uh, John calls this book a prophecy four times. Uh, it happened three, seven times throughout the book. He calls it a prophecy. Uh, and it's right in line with the Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets uh, are, are covenant enforcers, you might say. They're writing to the people of God, the people who said they're within, with covenant with God. And with covenant, like any relationship you experience, means there's certain obligations. Right? When you get married, there's uh, marriage obligations that you vow to. Okay? Now, God, uh, through the prophets, is always writing to his people, saying, you have an obligation in this covenant. And the prophets are regularly confronting God's people because they're saying, look, remember the promises and the curses of the law, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. You're not doing it. And therefore, this problem has come upon you. And if you don't change, if you don't repent, this is going to happen. Eventually, you'll be kicked out of the land. This is a very popular message of the Old Testament prophet. But they are also then take that through and then give them comfort. Because they say, but God will bring you back. God will bring you back to the land. Because God, God loves you and God will sing over you. So the prophets are always comforting and they're always confronting um, God's people. And that's exactly what John has been doing throughout the book. Interestingly enough, uh, John only gives uh, commands in chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the churches. The only other command you have throughout the rest of the book is in chapter 18, if you remember uh, the destruction of Babylon, when one of the angels calls to the church and says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of the world. Don't be seduced by the world. All the other commands are in chapters 2 and 3, and they either have the flavor of hold fast what you have or repent, turn. You're giving in to the world. These are the, these are the two main commands that run through those chapters. And one in particular I think is very potent. It says, be faithful unto death. And throughout chapters 2 and 3, it's this continual charge to conquer, to make it to the end. And how do we conquer? It's by remaining faithful to the end, even unto death. And oftentimes it's by dying. You're not giving into the world, and if they kill you, they kill you. That's what John's message is. Now, remember, John is on the island, one who's persecuted, and he tells the church in chapter 1, verse 9, that he is a partner in the tribulation. So, the tribulation is not something future to John. John says the tribulation is now, he's in it, and his audience is in it, and in, indeed, all the churches through the ages will be. And John's, John says, I'm a partner in the kingdom of God with you, we've been redeemed by Christ. And I'm a partner in the patient endurance, which we must hold. Uh, one more thing to remember, uh, and then we'll dive into this passage. John then is writing an apocalyptic prophecy, you might say. If you remember, apocalyptic is a certain type of prophecy, a certain type of genre uh, that intentionally uses sort of what we might say otherworldly pictures. Like locusts with fangs like lions. Right? It, it, it's intentionally... Uh, out of this world, and it's trying to help you imagine something so that you experience a reality behind it. Uh, we, we have taken the approach, we don't take those as literal, um, the, the images that are painted, but they literally point us to a reality that God is trying to give us. The very first word in the text of Revelation is uh, the apocalypse. It means the unveiling 
The revealing. God is like pulling back the curtain so we can actually see what's really going on in the world. What is the true testimony of Jesus? This man who died 2,000 years ago. The testimony is that he was risen, he was enthroned, and he's reigning on the throne today, and that he's returning. And that's what John's testimony is. And John's going to then give these visions in chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, to the church so that she's strengthened to both repent and hold fast. And that's what you have going on in the book. Now, John, we've gotten through all the vision section. He begins his descent. And you'll notice in our text, there's three, uh, a threefold announcement from the Lord Jesus himself. I assume you caught that. Uh, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. I am coming soon. Yeah? You also see a twofold blessing. You see the first blessing there in verse 7 and verse 14. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who wash their robes. You also see a twofold warning uh, in this passage. And then you have a closing response with come from the church. Come, Lord Jesus. Today, uh, we're just going to hit the first two sections here. I would sum up this section as this. I think John is saying to his audience, Blessed are those who are cleansed by Christ so that they keep the words of Christ as they long for the return of Christ. That's how I get all three of those sections in there. The three, I am coming quickly, I am coming soon. Let me say it again. Blessed are those who are cleansed by Christ so that they keep the words of Christ as they long for the return of Christ. We're going to hit those first two today, uh, organized around the blessings, the two blessings, and then next week we'll hit the final note of longing for the return of Christ. But let's, let's take a look at both of these blessings. The first one uh, is in verse uh, 6 to 11. Let me read it again. And it's simply that blessed, blessed are those who are cleansed by Christ. I'm sorry, blessed are those who keep the words of Christ. Uh, beginning in the middle of verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. All right, this first exhortation then, or blessing, is blessed is he who keeps the words of Christ. Now, we've seen this blessedness before, the blessing. Uh, again, there's a, a seven times, there's seven blessings throughout the book. Uh, to be blessed, or to be a blessed one, means to be, you might say, happy of soul. Right? This is very, very common language throughout the uh, psalmist. Right? Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God. Or blessed is the one who kisses the Son. Or blessed is he who seeks refuge under Yahweh. Who, who, it's asking the question, who are the blessed people on earth? Who are those who are happy of soul? 
Well, John, in the close of his letter, is going to tell us who are the happy of soul. This group are those who keep the words of Christ. Now, that word keep is important, right? Because it's not those who hear the word of Christ. It's not blessed are those who can talk about the word of Christ. It's not blessed are those who can argue about the word of Christ and make some nice pristine theological statements. It's blessed are those who keep the words of Christ, who hold to them and walk in them, right? Who seek not to turn to the left or to the right, but hold fast the words of Christ. In other words, not to be like Jonah. You remember Jonah, right? God tells him to go to Nineveh to proclaim God's truth there. And if you know the story, he's supposed to go up to Nineveh. Instead, he goes down to Joppa to catch a a boat so he can go over to Tarshish as far away from Nineveh as he can get in the midst of his rebelling rebelling against God and running from God's command. Uh, There's that great storm, remember, and the, uh, the, the, the men on the ship are throwing off cargo and they're terrified. They're crying out to their gods and they finally cast lots and they come and ask Jonah, like, who are you? Like, like, clearly, you're the problem, and uh, Jonah stands up. You remember what he says when they say, who are you? Where are you from? What are you about? Remember what Jonah says. I mean, absolute, pristine theological statement. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made heaven and earth. I mean, that's, that's theologically perfect in the midst of rebellion. Right, this passage here is not saying blessed are those who can talk about theology. Blessed are those who keep the words of Christ. They matter to you. Your opinion is secondary. What Christ says goes. Those are the people who are happy of soul. So what the message is, is blessed in context of the book, are those who remain faithful to Christ even unto death. Like I said, it's an interesting morning here. (laughs) Now throughout the book you also get, it's not just simply believing the right things. That's not what it means to keep the words of Christ. That is part of it. Like we have to believe the right things, right? But it's also the right behavior. Right belief, right behavior, because the right belief actually should produce the right behavior. So, so he's hitting on both throughout the book, that we must live a certain way, and we must believe. Because make no mistake, when God calls us into covenant with him, there's always covenant obligations. Right? Do not grumble. Consider others as more significant than yourselves. Serve others. Right? There's always covenant obligations. What does it look like to live as God's people? Blessed, happy of soul are those who keep it, who run after it. Now, of course, there's a little bit of danger here. There's, there's actually two dangers you can fall off on, the, on two ditches, and I think John actually intentionally guards from them. The first danger would be to overstate that or to overhear that as if John's talking about perfection here. Because what's the very next note that John puts in, the, in, the, in this section? He talks about one of his own sins. Right? He says, blessed are those who keep the words of Christ. And by the way, let me tell you how one time an angel was so glorious to me that I, I, was, starting, I was about to worship him instead of worship God. 
So you see that? So John seems to be guarding. He's not talking about a perfection. And whether this is a new scene uh, when John falls at the feet of the angel to worship him or it's one referring back to 19, John clearly, it seems to me, is intentionally placing this here to guard us from overhearing this statement because he's not talking about perfection here. The other side of the ditch is to understate it and say, well, well you know, you, you do what you can. Well, that, that doesn't seem to be right either. In fact, the, the way he comes back to it uh, from verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, this is coming from Daniel chapter 12, uh, where Daniel, uh, given visions to the future, was told, he was told to seal up the book. Because in Daniel's time, the time was not, during Daniel's time, the time was not then. So the, uh, the, the angel, I think it was an angel given the vision the same way, um, tells Daniel, you must seal up this book because the time is not now. John is being told, don't seal up the book because the time is now. The time is near. Also in Daniel, he's told, don't or seal up this book. And when the time comes, this is what's going to happen, Daniel. Those who are evil will continue to do evil. They'll do even worse. And those who are holy will be even more refined. When the proclamation goes out in the time, Daniel, when that actually happens, when the book is ready to be opened, those who are holy will only be more refined. And those who are filthy will continue to do filthy. And so John is tapping into that and saying, look, what Daniel saw as future has now arrived, so I'm, these, these, this book ought not to be sealed, and it's happening just as Daniel said. Those who will hear the message of the testimony of Christ, his death, resurrection, his current reign, and his return... They will just continue on in their wickedness. But those who are the people of God, who have been made clean, who are holy, they will continue to practice holiness. You see? That's how he ends that section. Let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Holy uh, has the connotation of being morally pure, right? But also just simply like set apart for God. To do as God says. You are God's people. To be set apart. So I, I think the way you might sum this up is if you, know, if you were to ask uh, about like my kids. Let's, I didn't ask her before, but I'll use my oldest daughter as an example. If you were to ask me, do my, does my oldest daughter obey me? I would say, yeah. Now, if you said, what do you mean, every time? Say, well, no, that, like, that's not, that, I don't think that's what the question means. It's talking about a characterization of a life, right? I think that's what John is going after. What does it look like to be one who keeps the words of Christ? It means to have a life characterized as one who strives to go in the same direction. That's why we use that phrase. I don't even know where that phrase came from. But it's not about perfection. It's about direction, right? It's going to look like this. We'd love for it to look like this, but it looks swirly all the way along because they're stumbling along the way. And you see that in the New Testament, the way the authors write, but it's about a direction. So the big question for us, though, is as you're sitting here today, should this passage, this portion, land on you as a warning or as a comfort? Now, the interesting thing is usually the ones that it should land on as warning hear it as comfort, and those who should hear it as comfort hear it as warning. 
right? <laughs> if you are not keeping the words of Christ, if your life cannot be characterized as one who's striving to walk in obedience to Christ, this text should be a warning to you. Jesus would be then saying, you are not one of the blessed ones. You are not one of the one who should be happy of soul. And when I come, indeed I am coming soon, you will find the judgment of God. But for some here, hopefully most, this passage should be a comfort. It's meant to strengthen the church. The reality is, is life here is difficult, right? I mean, we saw that in chapter 12. The dragon goes off to make war on the the woman and her offspring, and then he clarifies it. Who is the offspring? But those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The devil makes war against them. And we saw throughout the rest of those chapters, through the agents, through who he, he does it through, the powers of the world, the lusts of the world, he seeks to devour the church. Relationships are hard. Work is hard. All sorts of, this thing, uh, of things in this world is hard. And you have temptations flying at you constantly to not hold to the testimony of Jesus. To seek comfort in something else. To just find some relief. And this passage, I think, is meant to say, no, no, no. You stay faithful. Blessed are you for holding on. Blessed are you for enduring. That is the blessed life. It's not the easy life. It's not the safe life. It's not the immediate gratification life. It might be difficult all the way to the end, but that, that is the true happy of soul place. Hold to the words of Christ. So I think many, if you are Christ, this should be a comfort to you. The second blessing there we see in verses 12 to 16. We'll go ahead and read that again. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Uh, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. You see, all dogs do not go to heaven. Uh, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. All right, so there's our second blessing in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, hopefully when you read that, you don't hear that at all immediately as like, like, like meaning you, you, you're blessed if you do your laundry. That's not what he's talking about. I thought that was funny. Come on. Sure. Uh, if you go back to chapter 7, verse 14, it's the only other time he uses this word wash in the book. And he uses it about the, uh, the multitude uh, who are praising God at his throne. Chapter 7, verse 14 uh, well, you can start in 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, addressed John, saying, Who are these, John, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come from? And John said to him, Sir, you, you know. And he said to me, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the, the robes were made white in the blood. In other words, he's, getting, he's using a word picture here to talk about salvation here, right? It's, it's washing their, their robes in the blood, and the blood of Christ cleanses them. It makes them white as snow. All right, it's, it's the forgiveness of sins which has made them clean again. It's the, the robes were stained, deserving the judgment of God, and they were wiped clean by the blood of the Lamb. So when he brings this back up in this section, verse 14 of chapter 22, that's the, I understand him to be talking the same way. Blessed are those who wash their robes, who have found salvation in the blood of the Lamb, who have understood that they have sinned against the, the holy God and deserve the judgment of God. And instead of trying to fix it themselves, they say, I have no answer. I have no payment to make for my judgment, but I trust the blood of Christ on my behalf, the perfect, spotless, stainless blood of Christ to uh, pay for my sins and forgive me of them. That's what he's talking about. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes. And then look at the purpose, so that these folks will have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Now notice uh, verse 12, he says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense, or my reward, or my payment, the wages. I'm going to come and give to each person what they deserve for what they've done. And now John's going to spell it out in verses 14 and 15. To those who have washed robes, not because they have made themselves morally pure, but because Christ's blood has, they will find themselves in the new city, which we learned about in chapter 21, 22. And the other ones, the, the dogs, again, that's, that's a word picture. Dogs in most countries are, are yucky animals. They're scroungers, right? So he's using that as an image. Uh, dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, they're kept outside of the city. Right? So that, that's their recompense. That's their payment. Now notice, the people who have washed their robes, it's not, necess- not necessarily that they didn't commit the very same things. I mean, those words that are said in chapter or verse 15 could be said about those who washed their robes. The only difference is that the robes were made clean by the blood of Christ, not by what they've done. In the same way that Paul talks in Corinthians when he's talking about the sexual, sexually immoral, and he says, such were some of you. You did the very same things. What makes you any different but only the gospel has made you different. So here, blessed or happy of soul are those who have trusted in Christ, you might say, who have cleansed, been cleansed by Christ. And notice now what he does at the beginning and the end of the section. He tells us by what authority he has to actually give those rewards. He, he describes his character. You see that? How does Jesus have the authority to come with that sort of payment, one for judgment, one to allow us to enter the city? Well, because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's coming out of Isaiah 44, where God says he's the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. This is a way in the Old Testament, God using this this flavor that he's the beginning and the end, as demonstrating that there's no one like him. He alone is God. So we have here a very clear, uh, a clear testimony of Jesus being God himself as he proclaims that he is the beginning 
and the end. And then you see he closes this, this section with more descriptions. I am the root and the descendant of David. The root and the descendant. The root meaning he's the source of David. David comes from him. And he's the descendant. He comes from the line of David. So because he's God, David comes from him. And he's the one that orchestrated David's line, who would have a king, who would reign over all nations forever. And because he took on flesh, he also is the descendant of David. Right? He comes as the king, who would rule with an, uh, a scepter and crush the nations and rule over them. And so that's what's going on there. The bright morning star, the one who rules over the universe, rules over the morning. And so with those, that description is actually meant to be, those who read it, it's meant to either make you shiver because it's the Alpha and the Omega coming with recompense or it's meant to make you secure. Because how do I, how do I know? How do I know that it will be good for me? Because it's not just some Joe Schmo making this promise. It's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the very root of David, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He's the one making this declaration. That if you have washed your robes in the blood of Christ, if you have been cleansed by Christ, you will find yourself in the holy city. It's not by anything you've done or will do. You will find yourself there. And it's meant to bring deep, deep security. So those are the two blessings. Blessed are those who keep the words of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The question I would have is how do those two blessings work together? Blessed are those who keep the words of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes. How they work together is very important. And to get it wrong is very dangerous. The theological argument throughout Scripture is not, emphatically not, that blessed are those who keep the words of Christ so that they will be cleansed. That is the way of religion. That is the way of most people think in the world. That is most, the way all of us, I think, just are born that way, thinking that somehow if we behave, we will be cleansed by God. That is not accurate. In fact, uh, Scripture is very clear about that. Someone is cleansed by Christ only by faith in Christ. It's not by any works we could possibly do. By works of the law, no man shall be justified, made right before God. That is impossible. Because to fail once means that you've already failed the test. God demands absolute purity in order to be in his presence. So it cannot be that blessed are those who keep the words of Christ so that they will have their robes washed. It's in fact the opposite. The first must happen first. The, first, the other must happen first. Blessed are those who are cleansed by Christ so that they will keep the words of Christ. You see that? That is important. That is actually the gospel. That God, when he initially awakens a person to see the glory of God in the face of Christ, to repent and turn to God, and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and to give their life to Christ, that person is fundamentally changed inside. 
In fact, the New Covenant describes it. It uses a word picture of taking out the heart of stone, you know, a heart of stone that's dead, it doesn't work, and putting in a heart of flesh that beats after the very same heartbeat of God. And then God says, I will put my spirit in that person and I will cause them to walk in my statutes. It's like getting a a, a total overhaul in the engine. It's like God putting a gospel engine in and then continuously filling it with gospel gasoline so that we actually walk in the commands of God. So what must happen first, first we must be cleansed and then we actually live out our cleansing. So both are necessary Right? We must be cleansed and we must keep the words of God. So you could say it this way. I have four kind of ways to kind of land this plane here. Those who are truly cleansed by Christ must keep the words of Christ. That's what a covenant is. That is a covenant obligation that God has given to the church. Scripture does not try to water that down at all. If you have truly been cleansed by Christ, you must keep the words of Christ. That must characterize your life. And so maybe there are some here today that God has you here specifically to hear that word. Because maybe you're hearing lies of the flesh or of the enemy of the world and saying, well, no, maybe it's like you have to keep some of God's commands. You know, the, the, you can actually it, be kind to almost all people, but that person is just a jerk. And you don't have to be kind to them. They sort of deserve it. No, no, that, that's not what Scripture says, right? It's even pray for your enemies. To love them. If you are truly cleansed by Christ, you must keep the words of Christ. That's the first one. Second one goes like this. If you are truly cleansed by Christ, you can keep the words of Christ. If you are truly cleansed by Christ, you can keep the words of Christ. That's what the new covenant is. That God has made you new. He has changed you. You're a new creation. If you have been cleansed by Christ, you are different. You are fundamentally different from before. Now, some of you, it may have happened as you were a child. You don't remember Prior to that, some of you, as you're older, there's a, there's a clear you know, night and day change. But one of the, one of the problems in, our, in the Christian life that we all face is that sometimes sin shouts to us and says, there's no way you cannot do me. I have so much power over you. Yes, you've been able to stop those sins, but not this one. You cannot conquer me. Right? You've heard that voice, right? You can't help it. No. That's not right. That's not theologically true. Those who have been cleansed by Christ, we can keep the words of Christ. Now, it's going to be hard. It will take the help of the community of God's people. It will take soaking in the word of God. It will take walking by faith, trusting for God's grace to be there every step of the way. But we can keep the words of Christ. The third way you could say it is those who are truly cleansed by Christ will keep the words of Christ. So they must keep the words of Christ, they can keep the words of Christ, and they will keep the words of Christ. Right? Unless unless 
God was not right when he said that when someone's born again, that they will actually walk in the statutes of God. No, those who are truly cleansed by Christ, they will, again, not perfectly, but a sort of direction, they will keep the words of Christ. One of the great things you can do is probably not evaluate that one yourself, is ask, ask one of your loved ones, one of your friends, what do you think? Would my life be one as characterized as one who keeps the words of Christ? Because surely those who are cleansed by Christ, they will keep the words of Christ. And last, I think you could say it this way. Those who are truly cleansed by Christ desire to keep the words of Christ. So they must keep the words of Christ. They can keep the words of Christ. They will keep the words of Christ. And they desire to keep the words of Christ. What happens when someone is born again, they're made new, their, their robes are washed, is something begins to happen inside. The Word of God goes to work inside the person. So their behavior changes, yes, but inside they begin to act differently and to desire different things. So I, I know that if you're truly born again, there's something, sometimes it's a burning flame, sometimes it's a small flicker, but you desire to walk in the commands of Christ. Now, wouldn't we love it if that was just a, a super clean uh, desire where it's always just like so easy? It's like, of course, I just love obeying God. I love it. No, that's not how it normally goes, at least not for me, right? It no m normally looks more something like this. Hey, you know, one part of me says, hey, you should do that. Or look at that, or say that, or that would feel good to do. And then the good part of me and that God is renewing says, no, I don't want to do that. Like, that, that would be against what God says. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but he doesn't really know what's good for you right now. Like, that, that would be so good, wouldn't it? Yeah, maybe, but I, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, why are you still talking to me then? Because obviously you still want to do it if you're still talking to me. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to me, you know. No, I'm not doing it. Well, you, you will do it eventually. You will. So you, eventually you're going to cave. You might as well just cave now. Just get it over with and enjoy it. Stop the battle. Come on. No, no. Just stop it. No. You, you can't stop me. You just, eventually you're going to go, all right, fine. Right? It, it, now, sometimes you win the battle. Sometimes you lose the battle. The point is, it's war inside. It's absolute battle. So I don't think desire to keep God's word is just some simple thing. I think it's battle. I mean, the way Peter talks about it is that there's lust which wages war against your flesh, which means if we desire to keep the words of Christ, it will feel like war, which means if you feel like an embattled saint today, because you just feel like you, all you can do is keep fighting temptation and never stops, that is a beautiful sign. That means the true desire is there. That's a good sign. You should not be discouraged by that. You should feel hopeful that God is doing a good work in you to continue to fight against those temptations and to battle. So, dear saint, hear this then as a great comfort to you. The fact that there's war in the soul declares that you are one of the blessed ones. Blessed are you who are cleansed by Christ so that you continue to strive to keep the words of Christ. And what happens in the saint who experiences that is a true longing 
for Christ to return, which is how he closes the book in the last paragraph, which we'll hit next week. But now, let us join together and partake of the Lord's Supper, remembering that it is the work of Christ that has cleansed us and it is the work of Christ that empowers us to keep his word. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you walk in repentant faith, again, it's not about perfection but about direction, uh, then the table is open to you. If you're here this morning and you are not a worshiper of Jesus or you are living in unrepentant sin, then we ask you not to partake. Uh, use the time to think about the testimony of Christ, that he died and rose from the dead and he's returning. And ask yourself, how? How will you stand before God but by the blood of Christ to have your robes washed in his blood? Uh, we're going to do it a little bit different because we're in a new setting here. Well, let's go out to the outside aisle and then come grab uh, the elements and then go back to the inn inward part of the island and have a seat. So again, uh, outside, come through the middle, and then grab the elements, have a seat, and then we'll partake together. Well, we will let the uh, blessings direct us for the exhortation here. Um, let, let these elements speak to you today, reminding you, Christian, that you have been cleansed, not by your own doing but by the broken body of Christ on your behalf. It was not your righteousness that makes you stand before God, but the righteousness of Christ given to you because he shed his blood for you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. It is a wonderful mystery we are weak people, stumbling people, a powerless people. And yet God says, because of the shed blood of Christ, the inauguration of the new covenant, we have been empowered to keep the words of Christ. As we partake of the cup, let it remind your soul, especially if there's a sin that just feels nagging, overpowering, to say, no, it does not have to rule over us. Because Christ's blood has inaugurated that new covenant. We will trust in him. And if that's you, hear that, and we'd love to pray with you afterwards. But dear Christian, the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.